Well, if you can imagine, uh, remember, uh, this letter of Revelation would have been sent by, by the Apostle John from the island of Patmos to a number of churches. And so if you're in the church at Ephesus or you're in the church at Smyrna or Pergamum, Laodicea, your church receives this letter from John and the next gathering you have, or maybe it's that very night because someone comes running into town and the, the word spreads like, John has written us a letter. And so let's gather and read it. The, the church then gathers in a house, most likely a small house where they're, they're packed in there and they start to read the letter. Now, let's remember, they didn't take nine months to go through the letter like we did, right? They're, they're going to read through it straight through, listen to it. Uh, the question for you would be, when they get to the end of the letter, how do you think the church, who's just heard this message, feels at the end of this message? What's going on in their mind as they get to that final note of the book? Probably what they didn't experience uh, would be confusion, like a lot of people in our culture would, would experience as they read this book, right? It's like, well, what in the world was that? They probably wouldn't experience discouragement, or at least I don't think that's what John would want them to, to experience. Even for the church that's starting to go wayward, John would, by this point in the letter, want their heart to be broken and repentant and looking forward again to the work of Christ and the coming of Christ. So I think, though, by the end of the book, I think John actually tells us what, what the sense of at the, at, at the church should be at the very end. You see it there in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, Come! And I think he def closes with defining what he means by the come. In verse 20, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, or I'm coming soon. And what does John say? Come, Lord Jesus! So I think by the end of the book, that's what John is w wanting the church to have in them, to say, come, 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 Lord, this longing for the church. Man, this thing's like, I feel like I'm on a, a professional wrestling match thing. <laughs> Not that I've ever been in one, but so I see. <laughs> This, this longing for Christ to come. And also with this sense of like, let's go, let's do this, let's, let's persevere, let's make it to the end, be faithful unto death. I think those are the two things that would come together. Of course, that idea of conquering has read, uh, gone all the way through the book, right? From the very beginning all the way to the end, this idea of we must keep the words of Christ. And here at this end, this longing, come, Lord. Um, one of my favorite, or two of my favorite movies are very similar. Uh, you might like these ones, or something similar. The story of the underdog. Uh, one, the one is a true story, or at least mostly, right, based on a true story. Rudy, you guys, you, the, is, every, is that a book for, or a movie for every generation? Does everybody love that movie? I mean, it's a true story. You know, it's uh, the underdog. He's this, this small guy from a small town, who is, is, he's the first one to ever go to, off to college, and he, he gets to Notre Dame, this really prestigious school, and he actually gets to supposedly be on uh, the field for one play with the Notre Dame football team. Never really got to suit up and be on the field or anything or be at the game, but finally, because his teammates let them uh, 
uh, convince the coach to let him be on the team for the one day he gets in for one play. And however that played out, actually, you know, the movie, by the time you watch the movie, you can't help but say, man, I got to go work out. Like, man, you're going to have an awesome workout, right? Uh, the second one that would be, uh, per, this is probably my second favorite movie of all time, Rocky IV, when uh, Rocky fights the, the Russian, Ivan Drago, right? Because you just watch the underdog story the whole time, and finally, the, the, even the whole crowd, the tides turn mid-match, mid and I mean, he comes out on top, right? I mean, what, a, in a, what an amazing speech at the end, you know? If yous can change and eyes can change, everybody can change, right? But, but you get juiced up by the end of that, and you're like, I, I have to work out. I got to go for a run. I got to go lift weights or whatever. At least that's what usually happens to me. I think something to that effect. <laughs> Is it, are you laughing because you do that too or because you don't do that? <laughs> we'll talk after. <laughs> Nonetheless, I think it's that sense, let's go with it, uh, that the church, I think by the end of this book, would be like, yes. Because I think what happens, remember, this is, this is a letter that's in picture form that's helping, helping the church see reality. Or it's helping, helping people see what's really going on. I, I was watching some video clips this past week of uh, people who are colorblind see, for the, like, see color for the first time. Those are some tearjerkers if you want to... Just if you ever need a good cry, this, you find videos like this. It's, it's an amazing thing because some with color blindness, I, I'm not super familiar with it, but they essentially can see some color at time, but it's just it's very, very faint. And they make these glasses where they actually can, can see color. And when they put that on, it's just, I mean, it's very emotional for the folks because it's like for the first time they're seeing reality as it really is. And they're, they're going like this with the glasses, like that, that's really that color. And they're excited because they see reality for the first time. Or you might think of Elisha uh, when, when the uh, neighboring army came against him and uh, his servant was terrified. And remember, Elisha prays to the Lord, Lord, open up his eyes so he can see. And God opens up his servant's eyes. And what does he see? But chariots uh, all over the mountain who are with, with Elisha and with the servant to protect them. And the book of Revelation is meant to convince us that the very decrees of God for the direction of history and the destiny of history will unfold exactly how he has declared it, with Christ reigning and Christ moving history along. And it's supposed to convince us that Christ is on his throne. And in so doing, produce in us a patient endurance. I think you can sum up the goal of the book is John is trying to produce patient endurance in the church that that's his goal so that the church would get to the end and say let's do this i'm not going to live for this world i'm not going to live for my own life i'm going to live for the glory of christ and if i die i die because it advances the kingdom and christ wins and i'm going for it let's do this let's not hold back let's not make up our own rules let's not make up our own opinions we're going with what christ says because he's king so let's go Now, the fuel of that, of course, is that message. And he does this in picture form. And this is, remember, this is apocalyptic prophetic language. Uh, and we've talked about this many times throughout. It's, it's pictures. You, you can simply declare that um, the devil hates God's people. Right? You can, you can do that. You can say that in a one nice sentence. 
Or uh, you can do like Peter does in his book and say that uh, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? He's using an image of something we know. Right? He's going to be like this lion who wants to devour the church. Or you can do it like John does in this book and says this dragon who's waiting for this baby to come out of this woman up in space and, and he wants to eat the baby and then he's running through the desert trying to like blow water at her to drown her and then trying to, you, like you just get this vision. It's crazy, but you're supposed to experience it. You're supposed to experience the terror of it and you're supposed to experience the rescue, right? And so John is using these crazy images all the numbers that are symbolic to try to convince us of this very truth. That Christ reigns on the throne today and the very decrees of God for the direction of history and the destiny of history will be as told. And that's supposed to strengthen us for patient endurance. Let me give uh, one, one, uh, we'll walk through the structure just briefly um, I would say at the, at the close of the book, as we end it, I would say this is, this is probably my second favorite book that we've ever preached through uh, at Crossway. And my first would be Ecclesiastes, uh, but this I would put as number two. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I would say one of the major things that I've loved the most, uh, that I've found most rewarding, is watching the, in, in, the intimidation level of the book continuously go down a little bit. Probably not perfectly, but a little bit. Right? This, this book can be intimidating for many folks. Now, what's interesting, though, I asked uh, my oldest about a month and a half ago, or a month ago, how, I said, Tally, what have you thought about the book of Revelation? She's, you know, she's sat through most of it and been taking notes and stuff. And she said, yeah, I th- I've, I've thought this is great. I, I've really liked it. You know, you guys said at the beginning that it's kind of confusing and weird for people. Yeah. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but I think what's happening, you know, she doesn't come with any kind of baggage of, of, things, of, of things that she's heard about it all over the place. It's just kind of coming with a clean slate and seeing, well, yeah, that seems sort of obvious. I don't know, it seems pretty clear to me. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I have found that very encouraging. But second reason, uh, Lord willing, we've all experienced just how incredibly practical the book actually is. When you can see the book as written to the churches, not just the churches that John knew at the time, but those churches representing all the churches throughout the ages, uh, as well as in John's time, and just what they were going through, their unique situations, some who are in in pain because of the world and are tempted to uh, go away from Christ, to just give in, and some who are experiencing pleasure from the world and are distracted, tempted to, to be distracted from Christ, and John saying this, brothers and sisters, is the tribulation, we're living in it, where the devil is making war on the church, trying to distract her from the truth, trying to move her away from the truth, hold fast, endure to the end. So let's walk through a really quick structure once again. Uh, this is meant to say we want to make this book as easy and as accessible as possible. This should only take a couple minutes, but I just want to give you four more anchor points, just so you see it once again. Uh, so if you start off in the very first uh, sentence of the book, I'm going to show you five kind of major anchor points, kind of give some of what's going on in each of the sections, and hopefully you go, well, yeah, duh, like that's super obvious. Why? We already knew that. 
All right, so chapter 1, verse 1 starts off, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, I'm hopeful that you recognize that very phrase, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Because if you go back to chapter 22, verse 6, the passage we read today, if you go back there, right in the, the 6b, the second statement of the verse, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. It's verbatim the exact same phrase. Uh, that's intentional. John is using that as a, the opening of the book, and he's using it as the closing of the book. Now, if we go to 4.1, just pay attention to some repetition here. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come, or come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. There we have it again. I'm going to show you something. So we're going to have a transition. I'm going to fill this in in a second here, but go to 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters. And go to 21.9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. All right, so there we have, we have five I will show you statements that really, I think, on a high level, outlines the whole book for us. The first one, uh, I will show you uh, what must soon take place. Uh, the, that's the beginning part of the book. That's the most accessible part. That's uh, primarily, um, it's going to deal with the churches. Uh, remember, those are the seven letters to the seven churches where Jesus is giving uh, direct, um, like, addressing the church directly to the church of Ephesus, I say this, to the church of Pergamum, I say this, and talking about their situations and telling them what they must do. For most of them, it's to repent, right? And for some of them, it's to hold fast. But you put those together, that's, that's his primary message, repent of any waywardness in the church and hold fast to the truth. Okay, so that's the first thing he's going to show us. It's sort of like showing Christ. You see that at the beginning of, of the section in chapter 1 at the end. Christ uh, who reigns over the churches, but the actual situation of the churches. Then when you get into 4.1, you actually get into all the, all the visions. From 4.1 to the end of chapter 16, remember we had those cycles. What we were kept saying, the recapitulation. So we had four, uh, what was it, four uh, seals, right? The unfolding of history. Uh, and it goes from the ascension of Christ to his enthronement all the way to his second coming, where you start off at the beginning, you end with the church celebrating in glory. Then we went to seven trumpets, or the warnings to, to the earth of the judgment that's coming, the judgments that are now that we see, but are pointing forward to a greater judgment. And it goes through the whole cycle again, where you end uh, in glory once again. Now, in these first two, after the sixth of both of those, you have this sort of what you might say a zoomed-in lens on the church, or what some call an interlude. In this, after the sixth seal, you have this question. As God comes in for judgment, the question is, who can stand? Who can stand when Almighty comes in judgment? And the answer is the church. 
It's the 144,000, if you remember going through that, and it's this great multitude worshiping God. Those are the people that can stand. And then in the seven trumpets, at, at the sixth trumpet, at the interlude there, the zoomed-in picture of the church, the question is, what's, what's going on with the church in, in the midst of all these judgments? And you get this mixed bag. You get, at some point, their evangelism, their proclamation of the gospel is very successful, and at other points, they're being destroyed. It's great oppression, it's physical harm, even unto death. But they end up in glory. And so at both of these, you have this after the sixth one, you have this what's the going on with the church during this time. Then uh, we get, uh, beginning in chapter 12, you get another series of sevens, which is uh, the, the, these great uh, battling with the enemy. That's when the devil actually gets introduced, the dragon as well as the two beasts come out and the, the, the prostitute comes out in chapter 14. And then it ends with seven, uh, seven bulls in chapter 16. Uh, these great judgments, once again, pointing to the greater judgment to come. So you have those series of recapitulation of from the ascension of Christ all the way to the end. And remember the illustration we kept using, the football, the football play. If the, the pass is thrown and you see the touchdown, uh, and then they do it from another angle, and then they do it from another angle, and nobody ever thinks like, wow, we just scored three, four touch, touchdowns. It's not the way it works. It's like we know that they're highlighting certain things. Then what happens in chapter 17, verse 1, when he says, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, it's like taking the football play and doing the very slow motion of the final second or the final half a second of watching the ball come into the defender's, or the, either the defender's arms or the, 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 the offense uh, offensive player catching it for the touchdown, right? This is very slow motion. Uh, from 17 on, we are focusing on the final judgment and the final salvation. So f- first he deals with the judgment of the great prostitute, which is umbrella term. Is that the, Remember, the prostitute represents the world, the world system, that the lust of the world that sucks in uh, so many of us, that the world will be judged and destroyed. But the world is just a tool for Satan, as are the beasts and the, and the false prophet are the tools of Satan that bring oppression and deception on the church. And then the dragon himself is destroyed. Right? And all of these to the lake of fire, except for the woman is burned with fire. And then in 21.9 and following, you have the wife, the bride of the lamb, showing the salvation of the wife uh, of the lamb, the bride. And then finally here, our passage today is the final, final note. So let's move on to that then, our final final note. We already looked at part of it last week. I was making the case that this whole section, the main point is something along the lines of blessed are those who are cleansed by Christ, that they keep the words of Christ as they long for the return of Christ. And we're only going to hit the final section here. We see a final invitation from John, an invitation to come. We see a warning to humbly submit to the plans of God, and we see a final, what you might call a, a choral director's call, or a call to entreat the Lord. So let's just walk through those. First, we see our invitation to come, verse 17. It actually is the second part, but we'll read the whole thing. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So let the one who is thirsty come. 
I, I like that uh, use of this illustration, thirsty, here. Uh, you can see that it parallels desires. Like to thirst is to desire. Do you see that? Let the one who's thirsty come, let him who desires. So that's the image he's going for. Uh, thirsty, you know, the thing is, all of us know what it's like to be thirsty, right? Uh, we were just out eating pizza the other night. The kids were having pizza. Uh, and they, you know, all of them by the end were like, oh, I'm so thirsty. And there was no water where we were at. And uh, there's just this longing, the, the physical body longing for something. And what they, they know they need is they just need some water. I need it. I need it. I thirst for it. But I think what's important is to see how both of these go together. Because the call to come, we would say, that's the call to remain faithful to the end. Get, get to the place where the waters of life are. Right? It's, the, it's the call to conquer. But this thirsting and the, and the conquering together, I think, is, is a beautiful thing. Because you have to have both. Right? If you, don't, if you don't have a thirst to conquer, or a thirst to come, or a thirst to make it to the waters of life, you simply won't make it if you're actually tr- striving to walk with Jesus, right? Because of the pleasures of the world will either suck you in, or the pain of the world will just tell you it's not, it's not worth it. And so we have to have this thirst to actually make it. So I think even as you read this, uh, it's an invitation to come. Uh, but then what, what would we say? It was like, okay, fine, I'll just, I'll just come. Which is true. I mean, that's what he says, come. But the problem is when we don't want to come, right? When, we don't, when we're not thirsty. And so I think one of the great things we can do is, in this life, is try to continuously get that thirst up, right? To thirst for the waters. Because if we don't thirst for the waters, we will not continue to to endure. And so how do you make yourself thirsty? I mean, one thing you can do is, is simply be people, we can grow as people, who actually meditate on the goodness of the new creation to come. Right? That actually, it's almost like you can taste it, but you only taste it enough to make you thirsty for it. Right? I want, I want that. I want more of that. You remember that illustration uh, for some who were here, maybe you remember that Florence Chadwick illustration, possibly, the woman that swam. She was trying to swing, swim from Catalina Island all the way to the coast of California. Uh, it's some, like, 26-mile swim. She was sw- swimming for roughly, uh, I think it was 13 or 15 hours, and within a mile, and she, all she could he- see was fog, and she couldn't see the land, and eventually, if you remember, she, she gave up. She, she said, come get me out of the water. And then it was only then that she discovered that she was less than a mile away, and she told people at the press conference, remember, if I could have just seen the land, I would have made it. All I could see was the, was the fog. I was disoriented. I didn't, I didn't even know if I was going in the right direction, and I got tired. But if I could have seen the land, I would have made it. And so we have to be people that somehow keep, keep our eyes up so that we see a vision for the, set, the new creation so that we have a thirst created in us. You know, I, like, like I've said, uh, our girls are doing cross-country now. And uh, one of the things that's been fun is, uh, especially one of them, is, is realizing that there's all these inner voices that go on uh, in, in athletics and sports, uh, especially when she's tired and she, maybe she gets passed by someone or something. All these inner voices tell her to stop and slow down. And she's not going to make it. That pain's too hard. 
Uh, the wind is coming too far at your face. Or this is not weather that you're used to running in. How You can't make it. Or feel, feel the bumps in your feet. You feel that pain in your knee. All these thoughts come on in your head. And it's been fun to try to coach them along. So like, you, you have to speak to those voices. But not just like talk to them. But you also have to be looking forward. Like You have to envision you are going to make it. That finish line is there. And you're going to make it. You have to picture yourself Running through it, I mean, that's what, isn't that what Rocky used to do with Ivan Drago right there on his, on his mirror? That's what we got to do. We got to picture it. So one thing is just simply be people that take the time to rest in the text to meditate on the new creation. Another thing that we have to do, though, or we could do, is similar to what Kirk was talking about earlier, is we actually intentionally put ourselves in difficult situations. There's a lot of pain in this world, right? And what happens, like Kirk was saying earlier, when you find yourself in a place where you can't solve it, it's too big, it's too beyond you, you don't know what to do, this is too broken, you start to feel it. You start to feel like this, this world can't be enough. This world is not going to satisfy. We have to get to a new place. And it creates a yearning that way, right? So if you don't, if you don't, today, you, if you sit here and go, you don't feel that thirsty, those could be two things you do. Set aside some time, meditate on the new creation, or say, you know what, this week I'm going to get involved some, somewhere in the city that there's a lot of pain to experience. And if you can't think of anything, come talk to us. We'll, we'll direct you towards things where we say, that's a painful situation. And we, we can do that, right? So that's, uh, we want to stir up our thirst. But that's the first thing, an invitation to, to come. Second there, he gives a final note of a warning. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, let me just say, for this warning, um, I, I don't think this warning is meant to communicate, communicate to, like, copyists. You know, people would, they were called copyists. They would, they would copy manuscripts of the, of the scriptures, right? And that's what they would do with their, as a job. I don't think it's a warning to copyists to not change, like, words in the, in the text, it would apply to them, no doubt, but I don't think like, that's why that's, this is here. Um, I think really the, where he's going with this, it's a gracious warning to the church for the church to humbly receive the very words of the book, both in the commands that God gives in the book and in the plans he lays out in the book. Right To say, I will humbly submit myself to what the Lord lays out there. Now, uh, Moses does this very thing in Deuteronomy after he's given the law to the people, as the people prepare to go into the uh, promised land. He says, do not add to, the, to these words. Don't take away from these words. Whoever does that, the curses will come upon you. Right? So this is right in line with Moses, not necessarily talking about the writing of, of the text, but talking about the heart posture of God's people. God has given commands to his people. 
And we are to be people who don't come with our own opinions and say, well, yeah, we do, uh, 95% of those are really great. We like those, mostly because those are easy ones for us. Those 5% don't really jive with my opinion. They don't really jive with my coworkers and how, how upset they get with me, how I think about that. So I, let, let's take those ones off the table. I think John particularly is talking to that very attitude. We don't get to do that. Like, those who are called of Christ, who have been cleansed by Christ, are those who say, Christ is king. What he says is goes. His opinion matters more than mine. His, I, it's not about my feelings. I don't get to be bitter towards this person because I feel like it. I don't get to not live in this particular manner or because I want to. I don't get to keep this portion of my bank account for me and God can have the rest. That, that's simply not the way... God calls his people to, and and it's a gracious warning from God to his people. And let's just remember that warnings from God to his people are a means of grace to God's people, right? This is not God trying to be harsh on his people. Uh, This, this, you could think of it like a a parent warning a child. You could think of a a coach warning their their players or a coach, you know, for any any coach that's preparing a team to prepare for some sort of a competition, Right? It might be very common for a coach, whether it for, be for a, a drumline competition or for uh, some cross-country meet or whatever it is. It's saying, you know, we're, we're headed into the playoffs here. We're headed into the championships. If you guys slough off like you did today, you guys are going to lose. I don't ever want to see you come in here like that again. You do that, we might as well stay home. Like, now, those who actually trust the coach, what are they going to do? They're going to hear that. They're going to hear the warning. They're going to actually move forward. Those who don't trust the coach, you're like, what a, what a jerk. Right? This is a warning from God to God's people. It's meant to stir up faithful endurance. Say, whoa, I don't, I don't want to go that route. And so there's the final warning. So there's the invitation to come. Then there's a warning to what I would say is to humbly submit to God's plans and precepts. And then finally, we hear the choral director's call. So you see verse 17 and verse 20, I think parallel there. John, like the choral director, kind of calling up this yearning from the the congregation, from the church. Let the spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. Let he who hears say, come, Lord Jesus. And then John adds his voice, come, Lord Jesus. This This is the very heart cry of those who have been cleansed by Christ. This is the heart cry of anyone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's it's this idea of just tasting something what it's like to be in God's presence. Not, Not fully, but we've tasted something of it. And in the heart of the believer, it says, I want more of that. It's something of, of tasting what, it look, what it, it's starting to feel like to be restored and made whole again inside. Saying, I want more of that. I want the full completion of that. It's the, the experience of seeing how the grace of God comes into a home and, and sin is slowly, slowly eradicated. Not completely. But you see that the home starts to transform. And you say, oh, I, t- I taste that. Give me more of that. You, you know what samples are, right? You, you've had samples at probably COVID time. They don't probably do them right. But uh, there's this place at 1125 that uh, Isaiah took me to 
probably, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago. Super cool, great place downtown. Uh, this woman, this, this sweet old woman comes out and she, she forces me to take one of her samples of this chicken. And, uh, and it got me from bite number one. It, it, it was so good that I could not say no again. And I've gone back there, I think, three, four times, and I've gotten the same meal every time. Because it gave me such a small taste. But when I tasted it, it's, you know, I know that's just part of the dish. I know that that's going in a bigger dish. And I say, oh, I need the whole thing. Give me the whole thing, right? Um, that's how I said it to her, too. I said, give me, give me that. <laughs> I do, Ron. We should go out to, we should go out to eat together. <laughs> but this, this is the heart cry of the believer in this age. Because if we've tasted it, how can we not say, come, Lord Jesus, I need to have the whole thing. Give me the whole thing. The question I had was, what what does this look like in everyday life? I think for some people, um, well, let me tell you what it's not. For some people, uh, for people like me, um, it's too sporadic. So I don't think this heart cry is meant to be some sporadic, irregular, every once in a while, only when life is really hard, you long for it. I would put myself in that category. I tend to be fairly optimistic, kind of go with the flow, whatever. Um, I haven't experienced a whole ton of pain in my life. I mean, there's been some painful situations, but um, you know, by and large, I don't long for the new creation. I don't yearn for it. Part of it is I, I, I see a lot of the goodness of the, of the world in life and wanting to see my kids grow up. And it's like, I, there's a lot of things that keep me tethered here. It says, I like this. Now, those aren't, that's not evil, right? To, to, to like things in life. But what it shows is I have a very small view of the new creation, right? My view of the, this world is high. The, sec, the, the new creation is just not big enough. And so if someone like me, I need to grow a thirst. I need to get a bigger view of the new creation. I don't necessarily need to hate the world more. Because you can love the world rightly, love the right things, but get a bigger view of the new creation, right? Uh, also, sometimes for me, it can just be doubting the promise because it's too good to be true. Could, this, could, could it really be that I could drink from the water of life without cost? It's going to cost me nothing? And it's just the, the, the trust in the promise is too small. So it definitely, I don't think this is some irregular heart cry. So I would miss the mark that way. And my wife, on the other hand, misses it on the other side, where it's this longing minus a submissive heart to the will of God if he says, no, I'm not bringing you home right now. Right? So someone like my wife, as we've been t- meditating on this part and talking through it, she, uh, she will long for the new creation a lot. Now, there's something good in that view, Right? There's something she she realizes that there, I'm too broken. I'm, I can't get out fully fixed here. Get me to the new creation. Life out there is too broken. That that's not going to work. Like we have to get to the new creation. There's a it demonstrates a great trust in the promise of God to get us there, and how great is going to be to be in God's presence. That so that's all really good about the view. What's 
hard about the view or not so good about the view is a lack of trust for God's grace for us to deal with these hard times. That perhaps God's glory is demonstrated in the suffering of the church, going through the tribulation and experiencing his, uh, that we can truly be satisfied in him through it. Right? So it's longing for the new creation, but without a full submissive heart to say, yet, Lord, if you want me here to encounter all this hardship, I will do it for the glory of your name. And it will be for my good. So it's not that we do it irregularly, it's sort of sporadic, nor is it longing for it without a full submission. I think I would say, what does it look like? It looks like a true heart longing with yet a full submission of saying, yet not, not my will but yours be done. And I think, if I could use an example of the Apostle Paul, I think he gets it right on the head in the book of Philippians. You remember in that book, Paul is in prison, writing to the church in Philippi. The church itself is about to encounter more persecution, or persecution like Paul. He says the same sufferings that he has, you're now experiencing. So Paul's writing from prison to this church, about to experience suffering. And remember his, his kind of musing on death or life, Remember? It says, Christ will be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. Because for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You remember that? And then he goes on. He's kind of bouncing back and forth. So which I can choose, I don't know. But then he says, to die and be with Christ. Remember the phrase. He says, that is by far better. It's better to die and be with Christ. But here, I still do ministry with Christ, and it's you, church, that benefits. Paul talking to the uh, church at Philippi. If it's more necessary for your sake, for me to remain, I'm in prison. This isn't, you know, some nice, peaceful place I'm sitting in. I'll do it for the sake of the church, for the glory of God's name. To me, I think Paul hits it perfectly right there, saying that's by oh, by far better to be there, to be with Christ. And nonetheless, I know here Christ is with me. Christ will give me the grace I need to endure, to walk with him, and to, to glorify his name and care for other people. And he says, I'll do it for your progress and the joy in the faith. God will be with me. And so I think that is what a patient endurance looks like. To wrap up the book where John says we are in the patient endurance it's not just endurance. I like that English translation. It's a patient endurance. One that waits on God. We're going to push through. We're going to keep going. But we're going to trust God's timing. We want to make it to the celestial city. But we will trust God through the hard times to get us there. Or to use the author of Hebrews illustration. Remember he says, let us run the race with endurance. Fixing her eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And I think that illustration is putting Jesus right at the finish line. The one we're running to. And I think it's a perfect illustration of the book, how John is writing this. We have to have be people who focus on one day, brothers and sisters, we will see him. One day, we will experience the reality. They won't be glasses, but they will be the real, real thing. We will have new bodies in the new creation, worshiping Christ. And this morning, uh, let us partake of the, new, uh, the Lord's Supper and remind our hearts once again, using these philo- uh, physical elements, that it is the very death of Christ that secures that new creation for us. And we will see him 
face to face. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, the Lord's table is open to you. Uh, we invite you to come grab the elements and have a seat and we'll partake together. If you're here this morning and striving to walk in repentant faith with Christ, then you may come. If you're here this morning and not uh, a follower of Christ, or if you claim to be a follower of Christ but are living in unrepentant sin, we ask you not to partake. The scriptures say that would be uh, bad for your soul. Uh, so at this time, if you could come, and reminder, uh, we will sing uh, as we come and grab the elements. Brothers and sisters, uh, we've been told that it's only those who endure and keep the words of Christ. They will, only them will make it to the eternal city. But thanks be to God that it is because we have been cleansed by Christ that we have power to endure. And those who have been cleansed by the broken body of Christ, we will make it because of God's grace. This morning, let us be reminded, it's not because of our works that we will make it. It's because of the broken body of Christ on our behalf to bring us into the family of God and empower us to the end. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Let the fulfillment of the promise of God not sparing his son on our behalf, giving him up unto death, direct our hearts of the certainty of the promise of the holy city. You who have been blood-bought by Christ, you will find yourself in the eternal city. Let us see these celestial shores in sight let the blood be your confidence that he will get you there. That is our destiny. That is where our citizenship is, not here. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.